At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details. Welcome to the History of the Cold War podcast, Episode 2, The Geopolitical Roots of the Cold War. So in this episode, I will be outlining the geopolitical and diplomatic events that culminated in the Cold War. I will outline the political circumstances that brought about the Soviet Union and the antagonism and mistrust that existed between the Soviet Union and Western powers that led up to the Cold War. The diplomatic roots of the Cold War date back to the First World War and Tsarist Russia, the political framework that brought about the Russian Revolution and the Soviet Union. In the late 19th century, Imperial Russia was under great external and internal strain. Internationally, Russia was a great power involved in the balance of power politics in Europe and the race for colonies and natural resources in Asia. Russia had long borders and was constantly facing off against the threat of other great powers. In Europe, Russia faced the powerful modern German Empire and Austria-Hungary, a weak empire but still a force to be reckoned with. They also faced the Ottoman Empire, a weak empire as well, but a longtime enemy that had close ties to both Britain and Germany, both powerful friends. In Central Asia, Russia competed with the British Raj, or British-controlled India, for influence over the wide expanses of Central Asia. Finally, in the Far East, Russia faced the growing Japanese Empire, which had defeated China in 1895 and was a growing economic power. Domestically, Russia had a small but rapidly growing industrial base, with growing resentments between Russian workers and factory owners, which often turned violent in the shape of riots, strikes, and crackdowns by the authorities. Additionally, Russia was under pressure from the nationalist aspirations of its diverse populations. Estonians, Finns, Poles, and many others wished to establish or reestablish their nations free of Russian rule. Meanwhile, in the countryside, millions of Russian peasants lived in poverty. Serfdom, an economic system of servitude that tied the peasants to the land, did not end in Russia until 1861. In contrast, serfdom in Western Europe had come to an end in the early 15th and 16th centuries. Although things improved marginally for the peasants with the end of serfdom, the peasants were still displeased with their meager land holdings and subsistence living conditions. In the late 19th century, leading up to the Russian Revolution of 1917, Russia experienced a number of famines and food shortages which fueled resentment and class hatreds. Most social aid was provided by private charities and the Orthodox Church. The Russian state provided very little public assistance in any official capacity, which helped fuel criticism of the state and czar. The Russian state was a highly inefficient autocratic government with Tsar Nicholas II ruling the country as an absolute ruler. Even worse, most historians agree Nicholas was incompetent in his rule of Russia. He lacked the tr- intelligence, energy, and training for the job of managing one of the greatest empires in history. This is not entirely his fault, though. Nicholas's father, Tsar Alexander III, thought he shouldn't be taught in the ways of the state until he was 30. Unfortunately, Alexander died unexpectedly, leaving Nicholas Tsar at 26. 
An example of how bad of a leader Nicholas was is when he was informed that the Russian fleet had been destroyed at Tsushima by the Japanese. He read the note and stuffed it in his pocket and went back to playing tennis. In contrast to meeting with officials or issuing a public response, what would you expect a good leader to do? Nicholas was also notorious for playing favorites at court and surrounding himself with inept yes-men. Russia's subsequent defeat in the, in the Russo-Japanese War of 1905 led to political upheavals in Russia, which included strikes, peasant unrest, and mutinies. These events in themselves almost led to the fall of the Tsar as Nicholas was forced to accept reforms which included the establishment of a Duma, or representative body, and a constitution. For a while, Soviets or workers' councils even controlled parts of Moscow and St. Petersburg until troops were brought in to brutally crush these elements and reestablish Tsarist rule. All of this infighting further weakened the Russian government as autocratic pro-Tsar forces fought against reformist elements in Russian society to restore the Tsar's absolute authority and to do away with the Duma. After Russia's defeat in 1905, many Russian intellectuals believed that Russia must modernize and reform to remain a competitive power and to protect itself. The liberal elements among industrial capitalists and nobility believed in peaceful reform and a constitutional monarchy, forming the Constitutional Democrats, or cadets. The Socialist Revolutionaries, or SRs, advocated the distribution of land amongst those who actually worked it, the peasants. Another radical group was the Social Democrats, exponents of Marxism in Russia. The Social Democrats dif differed from the SRs in that they believed a revolution must rely on urban workers and not the peasantry. In 1903, at the Social Democrats' party's second congress in London, the party split into two wings, the Gradualists, or Mensheviks, and the more radical Bolsheviks. The Mensheviks believed that the Russian working class was insufficiently developed and that socialism could be achieved only after a period of bourgeois democratic rule. They thus tended to ally themselves with the forces of bourgeois liberalism. The Bolsheviks, under Vladimir Lenin, supported the idea of forming a small elite of professional revolutionaries, subject to strong party discipline, to act as the vanguard of the proletariat in order to seize power by force. While Russian intellectuals and liberals were arguing about the best way to reform Russia, Nicholas led Russia into yet another, far greater war with Austria-Hungary and Germany, which went disastrously for Russia in what became the First World War. Despite the bravery and superhuman endurance of the Russian army, Russia suffered devastating defeat after defeat at the hands of the Germans, losing millions of men due to better German leadership and technology. During World War I, Russia suffered 17 million deaths and 20 million wounded. To put that into perspective, Russia had a population of roughly 166 million people at that time which means that roughly 10% of the Russian population died in the war. By contrast, the largest American war, the Civil War, only had 620,000 lives lost out of a population of 31.5 million, or roughly 2% of the population. In 1917, Russian defeats by the Germans culminated in the collapse of the Russian government in February. Elements of the progressive left and Duma forced the Tsar to abdicate, which led to a provisional government. This government continued the disastrous war and itself was overthrown in October 1917, which brought the Bolsheviks to power under Lenin, 
who thus created the Soviet Union. Right out the gate, the Bolsheviks had problems. The country was in a shambles, and the German army was advancing east, closer and closer to the Russian capital of St. Petersburg. At first, the Bolsheviks tried to stall for time, believing that they could hold off until the socialist forces around the world overthrew the governments of the warring nations, including Germany, resulting in a new socialist peace and the ashes of the capitalist world. From a 21st century perspective, this may seem foolish or utopian, but from the perspective of 1917, it didn't look that far-fetched. Marx had predicted that for a socialist revolution to happen in Russia, one would have to happen simultaneously in the West. Second, the Social Democrats were the largest party in Germany, and Germany was suffering greatly under the effects of the war. Germany had suffered millions of losses and was rationing food as a result of the British blockade. By 1918, Germany, like Russia, faced strikes, riots, and mutinies, and a socialist uprising would erupt in 1919 with the Spartacists. In France, large elements of the French army had mutinied in 1917, refusing to attack the enemy. In Britain, the government had faced riots and strikes as well. So in retrospect, it's understandable why the Bolsheviks might take this gamble. Unfortunately, Germany's troubles did not come soon enough, nor did other nations fall to socialist revolutions. So with the German army less than 100 miles from St. Petersburg, the Bolsheviks evacuated the government to Moscow and signed a humiliating peace treaty known as Brest-Litovsk, which ceded the Baltic and the Ukraine to the Germans. The Bolshevik concerns didn't end with Germany. Russia now faced enemies in its former allies, Britain, France, Japan, and the United States, who had lent Russia millions to fight Germany, only to see their investments vanish in the smoke of revolution. Moreover, these nations feared the Marxist philosophy of the new Soviet state, which spread to their own nations. The Western Allies actively armed and supported opponents of the Bolsheviks, which resulted in mutual feelings of mistrust and suspicion between the West and the Soviet Union for decades to come. Winston Churchill at the time declared that Bolshevism must be strangled in its cradle. Meanwhile, American forces occupied the Russian port city of Archangel and later Vladivostok, where they were joined by Japanese troops. Elsewhere, Greek forces occupied Crimea. Other nations sent troops as well, such as Britain, France, Italy, China, and Australia, to help support the American and Japanese garrisons in Archangel and Vladivostok. These powers failed to topple the Soviet Union for a couple of reasons. For one, their nations were exhausted in both blood and treasure from the First World War. Second, they lacked the political will and popular support at home to engage in a drawn-out struggle with the new Soviet state. Finally, with the death of the Tsar and his family at the hands of the Bolsheviks in 1918, they lost a legitimate government to back as the whites were divided politically on what they saw as the future government of Russia. Despite this, Russia lost a significant amount of territory as many states broke away from Russian imperial rule, such as Armenia, Azerbaijan, Finland, Georgia, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Poland, and Ukraine all established as sovereign states who experienced their own civil wars and wars of independence after the German defeat in November 1918. Beyond these breakaway states and foreign powers, the Bolsheviks had to battle other factions for control over the rest of Russia itself, 
in what collectively was called the White Army, whose followers favored some reestablishment of the monarchy, despite the execution of the royal family, or a Russian republic. The White Army was a loose confederation of anti-Bolshevik forces aligned against the communist government, including landowners, republicans, conservatives, middle-class citizens, reactionaries, pro-monarchists, liberals, armies generals, non-Bolshevik socialists who still had a grievance, and democratic reformists. They bolstered these forces by forced conscription and terror to compel individuals to fight for them. Eventually, the Bolsheviks were able to prevail over the Whites for four main reasons. First, Moscow and St. Petersburg possessed the majority of Russia's industry, and the Bolsheviks also controlled a greater part of the population, with some 70 million people in contrast to the 20 million of the Whites. The Bolsheviks also had the military supplies from the previous government. It's estimated the Bolsheviks captured some 2.5 million rifles, 12,000 pieces of artillery, and 28 million shells, along with most of the armaments factories giving them the capacity to produce even more. Moreover, the Bolsheviks captured most of the Russian rail network, which radiated out of Moscow and allowed the Red Army greater mobility, communications, and supplies. Second, Trotsky was a brilliant organizer of men and resources and totally overhauled the Red Army, appointing political officers to maintain loyalty to the party. He also employed former Tsarist army officers to train and lead his troops by holding their families hostage, and he expanded the army, like the Whites, via conscription, again taking families hostage to ensure the service and loyalty of conscripted troops as well. Another factor which led to the victory of the Bolsheviks was the white forces were not operating as a single force, but as multiple entities. This meant the Bolsheviks could concentrate their forces on one enemy at a time, defeating one army and moving on to the next. The whites also had no clear shared strategic or political aim beyond defeating the communists, making it hard for them to muster political support from the Russian people. Finally, the Bolshevik policy of war communism organized the Soviet Union's economy around war. Strikes were suppressed, food was rationed, and people were conscripted into Trotsky's Red Army. Opposition political parties were banned, as well as opposition newspapers. The Cheka, or secret police, were organized to hunt down anyone suspected of opposition. The Bolsheviks also organized much better propaganda in the areas which they controlled, which helped with the morale of the Red Army. By 1922, Lenin had died, and after a brief power struggle, Stalin managed to replace Lenin as leader of the Soviet Union. By 1925, the Bolsheviks were successful in defeating the Whites and driving out the foreign elements, establishing a new state, the Soviet Union, which encompassed much of the old Russian Empire. The Soviet Union also invaded Mongolia, formerly a part of China, in 1924, and established a communist state there. And in 1927, Stalin declared his support for the Communist Party in China. By the early 1930s, Stalin, keeping the Soviet Union diplomatically isolated, launched the Third Communist International, or Comintern, an international organization that advocated world communism and revolution, with representatives from communist parties from around the world. On paper, this was an international organization with equal representation, but in practice, the organization was dominated by the Soviet Union. 
Seeing this internationally, the great powers of France, Britain, and the United States were afraid of the Soviet Union spreading its ideology to their respective citizens and imperial subjects, since communism directly conflicted with their beliefs in the civilizing mission of imperialism and their faith in the beneficial nature of capitalism. In 1924, the new British government under Labour Prime Minister Ramsay MacDonald, which was the first Labour government in British history, fell from power after it failed to prosecute a communist newspaper editor, John Campbell. Campbell called for British armed forces to lay down their arms in his newspaper in the face of a potential Marxist uprising, an act against the law in Britain under the, the Mutiny Statute of 1797. After MacDonald had the charges against Campbell dropped, the liberal and conservative parties in Britain both banned together with popular support for a no-confidence vote in the government which succeeded, and new elections swept Labour from power. MacDonald's government had established diplomatic relations with the Soviet Union as well, but this was quickly ended with the return of the Conservatives to power, and diplomatic relations were not re-established until 1930 when Labour came back to power. Despite this, a special branch of MI5, British Domestic Intelligence, had been established to monitor the work of communists in the colonies, even arresting Ho Chi Minh, and 1931 Shanghai police raid. British intelligence, in addition to MI5, actively shared intelligence with the wider British Commonwealth and the American FBI about the activities of Marxist organizations and their members. MI5 as well bugged the offices of the British Communist Party, monitoring both conversations in the building and phone calls. This information would prove vital in the coming decades of the Cold War. Many other nations were rocked as well by the reverberating effects of the Russian Revolution. As mentioned earlier, Germany faced a Marxist uprising in 1919 in Berlin, and again in 1920 as they faced a socialist uprising in the Ruhr, which was brutally suppressed by the German army and Freikorps, or who were right-wing veteran volunteers. This was followed again in 1923 by a communist uprising in Hamburg and Saxony, which was again quelled by the army and Freikorps. Across the Atlantic, the United States experienced the first Red Scare, and although this period saw much paranoia and extreme rhetoric, there was legitimate attempts by anarchists to destabilize the U.S. government. There was a bombing campaign in April 1919 with approximately 36 booby-trapped bombs mailed to prominent pol political and business leaders such as the Attorney General and John D. Rockefeller. The bombs were mailed in identical packages and were timed to arrive on May Day, the day of celebration for organized labor and the working class. A few of the packages went undelivered because they lacked sufficient postage. One bomb, intended for Seattle Mayor Ole Hansen, arrived early and failed to explode as intended. Seattle police, in turn, notified the post office and other police agencies. On April the 29th, a package sent to U.S. Senator Thomas A.W. Hardwick of Georgia, a sponsor of the Anarchist Exclusion Act, exploded, injuring his wife and housekeeper. On April 30th, a post office employee in New York recognized an additional 16 packages by their wrapping and interrupted their delivery. In June, eight bombs, far larger than those mailed in April, exploded almost simultaneously in several U.S. cities. These new bombs were believed to contain up to 25 pounds of dynamite and were all wrapped or packaged with heavy metal slugs designed to act as shrapnel. All of the intended targets had participated in some way with the investigation or the opposition to anarchist radicals. 
The FBI eventually tracked the source of these bombs to the Galientists, an anarchist terrorist cell best known for bombing Wall Street in 1920 and killing 38 people. Despite the arrest and deportation of many of its members, it remained active until 1932, carrying out bombings and assassination attempts against institutions and persons they viewed as class enemies. These events in 1919 provoked Attorney General A. Mitchell Palmer to suppress radical organizations which resulted in illegal searches and seizures, unwarranted arrests and detentions, and the deportation of several hundred suspected radicals and anarchists. This crackdown effectively ended, though, in mid-1920, after Attorney General Palmer forecasted a massive radical uprising on May Day, which never occurred. After the day passed without incident, newspaper reaction was almost uniform in its mockery of Palmer and his, quote, hallucinations, which led to his political decline. However, you can see how these experiences changed America's perceptions about communism, as these experiences would color much of the post-World War II's generation's views. One notable person was J. Edgar Hoover, who started the FBI under Attorney General Palmer and led the FBI during much of the Cold War up until his death in 1972. So leading into the 1930s, the Soviet Union and the Western powers were very mistrustful of each other, and the rise of fascism and Nazism in the 1930s did very little to change perspectives. Italy became fascist in 1922 under Benito Mussolini, a former Marxist himself in the face of a Marxist and left-wing opposition. Ten years later, Germany followed suit under Hitler and the Nazis who crushed their Marxist opponents in Germany. By the 1930s, Stalin had grown weary of fomenting revolutions abroad, especially after the setbacks in China, and sought to build socialism in one country, the Soviet Union. Stalin also sensed the growing danger of fascism and Nazism and sought to establish coalitions to contain Germany and Italy. Stalin faced a growing danger from Japan as well, who had invaded Manchuria in 1931 and now bordered the Soviet Union. This was followed by Japan signing an anti-Kermintern pact, with Germany in 1936 to stop the spread of communism. It should be remembered Japan had surprise attacked and defeated Russia in 1905 and helped to occupy Vladivostok in 1918, so Stalin saw Japan as a serious threat to the Soviet Union's eastern territories. To push back, the Comintern adopted a policy of cooperation with socialists and liberals against fascism thus changing its position from the early 1930s. The Soviet Union joined the League of Nations and advocated for collective security against fascist aggression. Additionally, in 1935, the Soviet Union concluded defensive military alliances with France and Czechoslovakia aimed against Germany. The first major Marxist-fascist clash, however, came in Spain and with the Spanish Civil War in 1936 to 1939. The Soviet Union sent material aid and advisors to the Republican forces, while Hitler and the Italians backed the Spanish nationalists under Franco. The Western democracies, on the other hand, remained neutral, fearing another world war, making Stalin and the Soviets question the democracy's willingness to stand up against fascism. These suspicions were reinforced in 1938 at Munich, when the Allies backed down to German demands, surrendering Sudetenland to the Germans despite the Soviet Union's willingness to aid both Britain and France in defense of Czechoslovakia. 
At this point, Stalin was convinced that the Allies were weak and wouldn't stand up to Hitler, so he decided to make a separate peace with Germany and hope for the best. In 1939, Stalin and Hitler signed the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, named after the respective foreign ministers. Not only did the pact secure peace between the Soviet Union and Nazi Germany for 10 years, it allowed for a division of Eastern Europe between the two powers. This treaty allowed Hitler to secure his eastern flank and eliminate the possibility of Russia coming to the aid of Poland, his next target of conquest. For Stalin, this treaty gave the Soviet Union a false feeling of greater short-term security from a German attack and allowed the Soviet Union to regain more territory they had lost in 1918 in the Baltic, eastern Poland, and Finland without the concern of German intervention. This treaty was a huge diplomatic coup. The Western democracies never saw it coming and assumed that given their ideological differences, they could never come to such an agreement. The Marxists viewed fascism and Nazism as a right-wing capitalist reaction to communism, whereas Hitler considered the Slavic people subhumans and communism a Jewish conspiracy and outlined his desire to conquer Russia in in his philosophical statement, Mein Kampf. The Allies were further frightened by the Soviet Union's invasion of eastern Poland and Finland. Britain even contemplated declaring a war against the Soviet Union because of its invasion of Finland in 1939. However, Britain decided against this given that they are already fighting Germany. Despite having this pact, everyone was shocked again, especially Stalin, when Hitler broke the non-aggression pact on June 22, 1941 and invaded the Soviet Union. Overnight, Great Britain and the United States, former enemies of the Soviet Union, found themselves allies. But despite this alliance, both sides still viewed each other with suspicion. The immediate source of friction was the Second Front. The Soviet Union was under massive pressure from the Germans in 1941 and 1942, with Hitler's running deep into Russia, at the gates of Moscow first and later to the mountains of the Caucasus. Russia was desperate for the Allies to launch a second front in Europe to take pressure off the Soviet Union. But early in the war, the Western Allies lacked the amphibious equipment and manpower for a cross-channel invasion. The Allies couldn't land in Italy until 43 and couldn't invade France until mid-44. This the Soviets saw as false excuses and suspected the Allies wanted to see the Soviet Union worn down in their fight against the Nazis, only to take advantage of them in the post-war period. The Allied mistrust of the Soviet Union didn't change either. Even before the end of the war in 1944, British and American military figures signed a formal agreement to continue the exchange of intelligence information about the position and makeup of Soviet forces. Furthermore, only days after the surrender of Germany, Churchill ordered plans be drawn up for a possible war with the Soviet Union. So, As you can see, the antagonism and mistrust between the Soviet Union and the Western Allies had been building for years, as their wartime alliance was one of political necessity. Moreover, the end of the war was more of a return to the policies of the 1920s and early 1930s versus the start of a new political phase. The big difference was the Soviet Union was much stronger in late 1945 than it had been in the 1920s or 1930s. I want to thank you for listening to Episode 2, The Geopolitical Roots of the Cold War. Join us for Episode 3, Marxist-Leninism, where we will be diving deeper into Marxist thought and ideology and the context of the Cold War. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook at the History of the Cold War podcast and Twitter 
at Cold War Podcasts to find our latest news and Cold War content. Or free, feel free to email questions to coldwarpodcast at gmail.com. Cold War Podcast, one word. At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at planetfitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details.